Well, good morning. Oh, I love that. I, uh, growing up in this church, that was always like, the same, it seems weird to say, but one of my favorite things about the morning at church was when everybody said good morning together. I don't know. I don't know what it is about that process, but I love it. Uh, well, look, I have a bit of a confession to make. Uh, and I know that they say the pulpit is not a great place to make confessions, but here we are anyway. <laughs> and my confession is that during COVID, I've been watching a lot more TV. Far too much, I would say, actually. And um, uh, I, I, I downloaded one of those things that tells you how much you've been using your phone. And uh, gee, that's convicting sometimes. Oh, you can pump a bit of, bit of time into those things and they, they really don't add much to your life. And so I've been watching a lot of TV and... And I've been watching one show in particular. This, this one show kind of stood out to me last year. And sometimes you find a show and it has seasons upon seasons upon seasons already stored up for you. And you're like, man, this is dangerous. <laughs> this is terrible news. I wish I didn't even know that this existed. And the show that I found was a show called Taskmaster. Has anybody heard of that show? Anyone at all? I got a couple of, yeah, I got a couple of hands. Great. So you know where I'm at. Well, for those of you who don't know, I'll bring you up to speed. Very simple show, great show. It's a, a British show, and the, the point of the show is it follows five comedians as they perform a series of odd yet simple tasks in order to earn the love and appreciation of the taskmaster, the one who's giving the tasks. They also earn points, but the points don't matter, uh, as, as with most shows. And so they're, they're, they're trying to earn the love of this taskmaster by, by, task by completing the tasks, but the tasks themselves are really simple. It's not, it's not Wipeout, it's not Ninja Warrior, no, it's throw a potato into a golf hole. So it, it, it's, it's a bit of a step back from what you might be used to, but there's always a few limitations, a few restrictions. And so, for example, with the, the potato one, they can't go within a certain area, but they're on a time limit. And so they do the first thing that comes to mind, and they throw the potato and hope it goes in, and then they realise, how am I going to get the potato back? If I can't go in there to get it, what am I going to do? Some of them have the foresight to attach something to the potato first, but most of them just throw it and then panic. It's great. It's a great show. That's where the, that's where the joy comes in as we sit back and we watch them make bad decisions, knowing that from the comfort of our homes, without the pressure of the situation, we got it covered. I'd nail that with ease. Well, one particular episode, one particular task stood out to me. I thought it was very interesting, because the task was to paint a rainbow. Very easy to do, but as they walk into the room to paint the rainbow, it is pitch black. You can't see a thing, but what you can see is a glow-in-the-dark paintbrush, a glow-in-the-dark canvas, and some glow-in-the-dark jars of paint. The jars glow, the paint does not. How do you paint a rainbow when you can't see the colours? Well, with, with a lot of difficulty, it turns out. And so they, they try and paint these rainbows, and they come out looking pretty awful, if you ask me. Uh, as it turns out, the colour order matters, and some of the colours are not colours you would want on there in the first place. So they work through this. It's a difficult task, and the final comedian walks in. And as he walks in, he reads the task, and the task says, paint the best rainbow, you cannot leave the room. And he goes... What if I turn the lights on? And so he walks over and he flicks the light switch on and then he comes back and paints a still quite average rainbow, if you ask me. But he, but he paints the rainbow and he exclaims, as he flicks the lights on, he says, well, that was easy, but I'm sure everyone will think of that. 
Much to his surprise, no one else did. And so today we're going to look at a passage in Galatians. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And, And as we open up into Galatians, we pick up right in the middle of what is Paul's great rebuke to the Galatians. He has some really harsh words for them because of some of the things that are going on. And and what he wants to emphasize is the simplicity of the gospel they received. The simplicity of the message that they once received from him. There appears to be a division in Galatia, a fraction, a crisis, if you will. And it's beginning to tear the church apart. And so Paul doesn't speak directly into the situation at hand, but what he does talk about is a certain type of disunity. A certain gospel that he says in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, is actually no gospel at all. Previously, Paul had come and likely established this church. In fact, we see in Acts uh, 13 and 14 that that Paul comes into this area and he starts preaching to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And he starts forming these mixed congregations of people with very different lifestyles, very different beliefs, but who are, are coming together to worship together. But even though Paul established these churches some time ago, he's now astonished that the church has fallen away from the message that he brought to them. They've turned away from the gospel that he once preached to them. And so it appears from some of the the previous verses that this problematic teaching, this false gospel, this, this terrible thing that has entered their midst, is that the Gentile believers, that is that the non Jewish believers, are being told to adhere to the Jewish practices. And in fact, in in a section just prior, in in chapter 2, Paul opposes Peter, uh, Cephas here. He opposes Peter and says, I I, I opposed Peter because he was separating the Gentiles from the Jews, because he was eating only with the Jews, and, and Peter stood condemned. I mean, these are harsh words about Peter, the guy who sometime earlier initiated the gospel to the Gentiles, and now Paul stands against him. Paul wants his audience to know that not even Peter could avoid this teaching. That it's dangerous. That it's in their midst. And for Paul, there is only one gospel. If you have your your Bible open, if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 21, it's the last verse before chapter 3. It's the last thing Paul says before he jumps into this rebuke. And he says this, I do not set aside the grace of God... For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The death of Jesus is on the line here. If this teaching is accepted, then Jesus' death is now worthless. It's a waste. That's what Paul is dealing with. And so now we come to Galatians chapter 3. We come to to Paul's rebuke, and hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of why he's so harsh. He's he's defending the death of Jesus here. And so please read with me. We're going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. 
I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law, uh, sorry, one moment. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. There's a lot in there. To put it simply, the Galatians have been led astray. They've been convinced that not only do they have to paint a picture, but now they have to do it in the dark. They've accepted Jesus' sacrifice, but now they've begun to believe that there is more and that Jesus' death alone is not enough. And so to convince his audience, Paul's audience, that this isn't the case, Paul makes two arguments. And we're going to focus on them in turn. And the first argument that Paul makes is that the Galatians received the Spirit when they believed in Jesus. If you've read through Acts, you know that it's pretty common that when people accept the message of Jesus, we then saw an outpouring of the Spirit of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we begin with the mission of the church expanding, and Jesus says to the disciples, I will give you my spirit and you will have power. And that is the thing that then leads them into into spreading the gospel to many areas. And so then we see at Pentecost in Acts 2.41 that there's all these Jews gathered. And as as they come and they preach to them, they then uh, receive the spirit. And they, they start speaking in tongues and hearing different languages. And so this confirms the spread of the gospel. But this happens for the Gentiles as well. It's not just a Jewish experience. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, who was just condemned in in Galatians, Peter comes into the Gentile house of Cornelius. And and as he's preaching to the people, he preaches the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And we read this in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 45. 
says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. The outpouring of the Spirit and the inclusion into the community of God is, is, acts, is seen as dependent on the audience's hearing and receiving the message of Jesus. Those who hear and believe are the ones who are accepted by God. And so this is why we see that Paul appeals to the Galatians' own experience. It seems that they've had the same experience. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? And then he says, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? The Galatians don't need anything added to their gospel, to the gospel that they have received. They don't need to adjust their course in order to fall into line with Jewish practices and religious beliefs because the Spirit has already confirmed their inclusion into the community when they believed, and that that is how they included into God's family. It's dependent on belief and not on any works that they perform. And here we find a challenge for us. Because as we read this passage, it's very easy for us to think, yeah, those foolish Galatians, like myself watching Taskmaster and and wondering how did they, they not think of a better result? How did they not think of what I thought of? We very quickly laugh at the Galatians and don't realize that we can fall into the same traps. Dare I say it, you foolish church. In our lives, as we pursue God, as we pursue everything that that we're trying to pursue, it's very easy to forget where we started. To get caught up in, in where we are and forget where we began. We so easily make the gospel requirements more for ourselves and more for others than it ever was when we first came to know Jesus. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we so easily forget the gospel when he is the center of our faith. We see that the gospel, the true gospel that Paul has has preached to the Galatians and that we too have received, means that we can never forget the cross. If you believe in Jesus, do you know what it was that first brought you to follow him? Do you remember the last time you reflected on on when you received his grace, his salvation? Do you remember what you were saved from? When we stop reminding ourselves of these things regularly, daily, we're in danger of forgetting the true gospel. Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God's forgiveness is readily available for anyone. For anyone who would look to the cross and believe. And when we, when we stop remembering this, when we stop being reminded of this, I mean, I'm reminding you of this today, you would have heard it a dozen times, if not more, but I remind you today, because when we forget this, then we can turn from the true gospel, and we can begin to accept others. When, when we stop to remember this, we can start to believe that other, other Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ, need to be whatever it is to be saved. They need to be politically aligned with us. They need to be on our social agenda. Maybe they, they need to, to vote for the right things. They have to have overcome the right sins. They have to have heard the right things, have said the right things, have been to the right church. We begin to place more and more barriers on other people when we forget the cross. And don't get me wrong. Scripture is clear that certain works come from a heart that has been restored by Jesus. And that, that, that a certain lifestyle flows from someone who has received grace. And that we are also encouraged to hold each other accountable and to build one another up. But none of these can trump the centrality of the cross. Of the truth that all have sinned, but all have been redeemed and forgiven by Jesus when they come to him through faith. I encourage you this morning, ask God to search your heart. Ask him to reveal your foolishness. Where have you added to the simplicity of the gospel? Where have you forgotten that Jesus redeemed you while you were still a sinner and gave you his spirit when you believed in his message apart from anything that you'd done? Where have you forgotten that Jesus meets the sinner where they are and that he works from there despite their sin and that he does the same for you? Where have you forgotten that the cross is just as central in your life today as it was when you first met Jesus? Well, Paul doesn't stop there, and neither will I. Because Paul, having appealed to the Galatians' own receiving of the Spirit, moves on to his second argument. You think he'd done enough, he's got more to give. And, and he begins his second argument by appealing to the Old Testament scripture. And he shows that it agrees with his gospel. In fact, Paul appeals to Abraham, which to a Jewish audience is about as highly as you can appeal without seeming blasphemous. As he appeals to, to Abraham, he, he uses this story because we think that it's likely that Abraham was being used by the Jews in Galatia to support their point to support their idea that the, the Gentiles need to follow their practices. And that's because Jewish tradition did not separate faith and law-keeping quite like we would today. Abraham's righteousness was from his faithfulness to the law. But Paul highlights that there is a significant difference between Abraham's faith and his faithfulness to the law. Paul quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, noting that long before Abram had a son, 
before he'd received the promise through circumcision, uh, before he'd even had his name changed, he was still Abram, he was regarded as righteous on account of his believing the promise that God had given him. It says that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. In the same way, the Galatians had believed what they had heard when the gospel was preached to them, and then they had received the Spirit from their belief. And so because of Paul's understanding of Abraham's righteousness having preceded the law, he's able to claim in verse 7 that all who have faith are children of Abraham. And three verses later, he cites Habakkuk saying, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul builds a strong case here. He quotes from all over the Old Testament to show that the law, though good, brought curses upon the people because they couldn't fulfill it. They couldn't uphold it. The law was a curse to them, but Jesus was the answer. That that Jesus bore the curses so that by faith we could become spiritual ancestors of Abraham. That that Jesus bore the curses that that we would receive because of our lawlessness so that we could instead be blessed through the cross. And so because of this, we begin to see in Galatians that all people, all people regardless of ethnicity, of religious background, of, of wherever they have come from or of any type of division, family, heritage, all are invited through Jesus to become spiritual descendants of Abraham. All are invited through Jesus to receive the blessings of the Old Testament promise. And the implication is massive because we already saw that, that the gospel means we can't forget the cross, but it also means that all believers, every believer, is equal under God's blessing. Every believer is equal before God. There is no room for division. There is no room for disunity or partiality. And and this idea comes to a climax for Paul at the end of this chapter, beyond the scope of what I read, but at the end of chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul says this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We live in a culture that loves to create division and disunity. It thrives on it. People of different ethnic backgrounds are placed in conflict with one another. Genders are in conflict as many women are diminished and many men are hated. Those without power are oppressed and those with power are demonized and seen as villains. And in the face of these disparities, the accepted response from our culture is hostility, hatred, violence, division. Paul sees another option. Paul sees a need for us to be reminded that we are all equal before God. That we are all one in Jesus. Last year I received a call during COVID um, about a a man who was in need. 
He was an Iranian man who had come over to Australia not that long before the lockdown and had uh, immediately lost his work because of the lockdown. Uh, And I found out that that he was a a man of faith as well. He was a Christian man. And so I I got his number and I sent him a message. I didn't know what I could do. It felt a bit beyond me. But I said, I'm a local pastor. I would love to come and at the very least pray with you. And so he said yes. And so a couple of days later, I found myself in a neighborhood that I was very unfamiliar with. uh, In what was my nicest shirt? Um, It was a mistake. Uh, Because I I knocked on this door and I was greeted by a a blue-collar refugee, a lovely man. And he greeted me with a full hug. First physical contact I'd had in weeks. (laughs) But he greeted me with this full hug. And he welcomed me into his home. And he sat me down and he fed me. And he introduced me to his family and, and allowed me to meet each of his family members and his kids. And then he sat with me and he told me his whole life story. And then he cried with me. And then he prayed with me. And then he offered for me to stay for dinner. And then he sent me on his way. I'd never met this man. I had no idea who he was. I'd only heard him from a a cold call. And yet, despite our differences, despite the fact that I was a, a relatively affluent, white, privileged, young Australian man who had been through very little hardship in his life, someone half his age, half as mature, half as wise, despite every difference you could think of between our upbringing and our situation, we were one, because we were united by Jesus. I left him with something to help with their situation, but he left me with the most profound image of what it means to be one in Jesus, of what it means to be united by Christ alone. The Galatians are faced with a teaching that will drag them away not only from Jesus, but from each other. Paul responds that the solution is the cross. The Galatians are confronted by a teaching that will make the the Jews and the Gentiles unequal in their gatherings together. Paul reminds them that all people are equal in Jesus. What would it mean for us to truly grasp this this morning? What would it mean for us to truly know that we are one together? What would it look like? Perhaps it would look like seeking reconciliation with a believer who you've been in conflict with years, seeking forgiveness or offering forgiveness. Perhaps it would mean caring for a believer who because of race, age, gender, whatever difference it is, maybe just they're not a part of your circles, who you would normally say, someone else will care for them, someone else will do it, it's fine. Perhaps it means realising that it is all of our responsibility to care for one another. Perhaps it would mean admitting when we've placed ourselves above another person, another believer, where we've placed our own needs ahead of them and instead we come and we humble ourselves before the cross and seek forgiveness. What does it mean for you that we are one in Jesus? For the church in Galatia, it means overcoming their differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
For the disciples, it means not only serving alongside tax collectors, but also serving people who are normally not a part of their world, who they would avoid. For the early believers, it means accepting a man into their midst whose name was Saul and is now Paul, who used to persecute them, put them in prison and kill them. And now he writes letters to the churches who he has founded. What does it mean for us to be one in Jesus? To be that focused on our unity that nothing else gets in the way? We are people equal before God only because of Jesus. We are restored and forgiven by faith because of Jesus. That is the simple yet profound gospel that we have received. That is the gospel that shapes our entire life. That is the message for the Galatians. That is the message for us today that the gospel changes everything. It's changed who we are and it changes how we live together. Allow me to pray before we head into a time of communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that despite where we've come from, despite all we've done, despite who we are, that you sent your Son, and that Jesus died, and now we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation with you, and we have relationship through your Spirit. Father, remind us every day of the cross. Remind us every day of your grace and your graciousness toward us. Remind us of your gospel so that we will not forget our way. And Father, also bring us into unity together. Help us to see our believers as one. Lead us into love for one another. Lead us into unity. Lead us into care. Lead us into your family and into your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.